In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." This is God's word. A reminder uh, that um, Tobias gave us when he preached the introductory sermon from our dear friend uh, John MacArthur talking about the Gospel of John, saying that the Gospel of John is both evangelistic and apologetic. So it should fill us with joy as we come face to face with the Christ of our salvation. It should fill us with utter joy. And it should also strengthen our assurance in him, in the one in whom we have believed. Remember that synonymous with belief is trust. They're the exact same thing in the Greek language. This is about trusting in our saviour. And it should fill us with assurance as we see this beautiful picture of the Christ of our salvation. Uh, So the Gospel of John is not simply a historical record or as often gets used around this time of the year, a nice book of somewhat fluffy stories that we turn to around uh, Christmas time or around Easter, but actually uh, a eyewitness, spirit-inspired, divinely written account of the life of Jesus Christ, who is our Saviour. And it's written so that we might believe and have full life, this abundant life in his name. Now, I want to make sure we catch the overarching theme of the prologue remember whenever i'm using the word prologue that just means first word or it's like an introduction the prologue is verses 1 to 18 of john and john is very intentional here in the first 18 verses to set the scene and to give us all of the information he feels necessary to set us up for the rest of the gospel of john and there is an overarching theme through the prologue that will be through the gospel of john which is primarily about how God has made himself known by coming into the world. It's about how God has disclosed himself by coming into the world. So we start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is clearly establishing Jesus as the self-existent, eternal God who was in the beginning and who is God. That's... Jesus, he is the word because in Jesus, God has fully and finally spoken to all the world as to how sinners must be reconciled. He is the word become flesh because in him, God has disclosed himself that is in Jesus. And through the word, 
God is bringing about this new creation. This is how he's going to reconcile people through this new creation. So we went over this last week. Just as God initially spoke light into darkness in Genesis 1, there was darkness over the face of the land. God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was. There was something out of nothing. In a similar way, we read here that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So in Jesus, in the word, is the fullness of life and light. And in him, God is speaking, saying, let there be light so that there would be this new creation in Christ. And the climax of the prologue, which we'll get to next week, is really verse 14, where we read how God has revealed himself because the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us, showing God's intention to dwell amongst people. And verse 18 finishes by just reminding us, no one has ever seen God, the only God, which that word there is like the only begotten or the unique begotten, basically saying the only begotten son of God. He who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So basically saying the unseen God has finally disclosed himself to the world in Jesus. God has revealed himself to lost people, shining a light in the darkness, saying, here I am in Jesus Christ. So the prologue in John's gospel is primarily about us knowing this self-existent eternal God in Jesus Christ, who is God's revelation to all people He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets before him. Everything was pointing to him as the final word, as the one in whom God has spoken, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the only one in whom is life and life abundant. And as we come to this Jesus, as we come week by week to Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another as we as a community of followers of Jesus learn more about the Christ of our salvation we are transformed into his image which is our whole purpose in life that's it be transformed more and more into the image of Christ and our passage today helps us see yet another perspective of our saviour that should fill us with awe and wonder. So we're going to look at verses 6 to 13 today. And we're going to work our way through it and then mostly look at what this passage tells us about Jesus and then what the passage tells us about ourselves. So to give a bit of context, remembering before we get to verse 6, there is the first five verses which tell us of the self-existence, the eternality, the complete power of the Word who is God. He created everything. He's the source of all life and light and nothing can overcome him. And now we are introduced to John the Baptist. Now, this should be a bit odd. Uh, If you're reading this, John the Baptist kind of gets thrown in here in just three verses. Uh, Like it would make a bit more sense if six to eight was almost taken out. And you just kind of have in him was life. The life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. But John, the gospel writer, now this can be confusing. So John, the gospel writer, if I'm referring to John on his own, I'm referring to John, the gospel writer 
If I'm referring to John the Baptist, I'll say John the Baptist. So John the Gospel writer inserts John the Baptist here. We're introduced to him as this key figure in verses 6 to 8. John the Baptist is the one in whom God appointed. We read that he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John the Baptist is like the ultimate evangelist. He's the one who is proclaiming the Messiah is coming, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist's role. So John the Gospel writer, different John, describes this by saying in verses 6 to 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, this true light. And what's the purpose? So that all might believe through him. And the reason why John the Baptist gets introduced here is because John the Gospel writer is all about introducing Jesus as the Christ and establishing his authenticity, his credibility, which is why he starts with this from a heavenly perspective in saying he is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. He's God. He's the one who created everything. And all are accountable to him. And then we get his credibility from an earthly perspective by showing that John the Baptist, who was ministering in Palestine on the earth, spends most of his life preparing the way for this coming Messiah, saying that to all the people who would come to him to be baptized, hey, there is someone greater coming to me, coming after me. There is someone greater who is the Messiah. So we have John the Gospel writer establishing the credibility of Jesus as the Christ because he is God who was in the beginning and because there have been people on the earth who have been testifying that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is coming. Now we will look more at John the Baptist over the coming weeks, but now we're going to just return to where John the Gospel writer wants us to return, which is in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light as Jesus, which enlightens everyone. It's saying that Jesus alone is the source of life. So it's not like Jesus illuminates every single person in some universalistic way. Rather, he alone is the only source of life. So everyone must come to him as the source of light or you're in darkness. And that's it. He alone is the source of light. He is the true light which gives light to everyone. He is coming in to the world. The way Jesus enlightens men is because he is the true light who, as we went over last week, he radiates the glory of God. God's glory is like this shining light that is just utterly attractive to those who have been born of God. And Jesus radiates that light. He is the light of God who then illuminates men to his majesty. When people are awakened to the radiance of the glory of God, they themselves become illuminated. So the true light which enlightens all men was coming into the world. Now, just pause for a moment and feel the weight of this. This is a mind-blowing theme here. Just get this. The one who created everything, 
the one who created everything, who's outside of time and space, is entering into everything. He's entering into his own creation. The subtle irony of this is felt in verse 10. I don't know if John intentionally wrote it this way that we could feel it. Uh, Verse 10 says, He was in the world and the world was made through him. He was in the world, but the world was made through him. He made the world. He's outside of everything. He created everything. Then somehow he enters in to the world. The creator is now in the creation. This is incredible. The creator actually enters into the creation. And it's not in any pantheistic way. Pantheism is in the belief that believes that God is just everywhere. God is in all things, in the trees, in the earth. He's everywhere. That's not the case. The miraculous and wonderful reality of uh, the creator entering into the creation is, of course, seen in the incarnation where God enters in by taking on human flesh. That's what this season of Christmas is all about, the incarnation. And we're so saturated with it now that we lose the weight of this. God who created everything, the word who is in the beginning, who is God, who is outside of time and space, he enters in. He doesn't do it by divesting himself of his divinity in any way. He doesn't become less God. He is fully God and he takes on human flesh by entering into the creation in order to redeem humanity. Let's not miss the the weight of what this is saying. It's kind of like if you imagine J.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings, the creator of it, somehow in some miraculous way, being able to enter into the story of Lord of the Rings. I've never actually seen or read the whole of Lord of the Rings, couldn't find the strength to get through it. But anyway, I'm aware of the story enough to know just how ridiculous that would be for a story writer. This other dimension that he has created to somehow enter in amongst Frodo and all of the characters in there and tell them of this other world. Tell them of this other place outside of the story. It's just mind-blowing. And to a much more extreme extent, that, that is what God has done. The God who the heaven of the heavens can't contain him. And somehow he enters in to humanity, enters into his creation. And the huge thing that makes this even more big is that God didn't have to do this. God didn't have to enter in. He could have rightfully remained separate from all of the corruption and all of the sin of this world. He could have rightfully remained totally distant and have still held all accountable to his righteous justice and damned all to hell. And he would have been perfectly just in doing that. And yet he enters in and takes on human flesh in order to save us from the corruption. This is incredible. As we work through verses 10 to 11, the clear theme of these two verses here as as he enters into human flesh, we read in verses 10 to 11 is actually the rejection of the God who is entering in. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own people and they rejected him. They crucified him. What a picture of humility from the God who created everything, 
who holds all accountable to enter into humanity, to shine a light to a world of darkness and yet to be rejected and despised. But thankfully in verse 12, we have a picture of hope and of light. But, so even though we have this picture of all rejecting him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a contrast. So we have this picture in verses 10 to 11 of this coming light that has come because the world is in darkness and the world is in such deep darkness that the Messiah's very own people do not receive him. In fact, they reject him and they crucify him and they mock him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Isn't it wonderful to have the but God's? He made us alive so that we could see the light. Though there is this picture of utter rejection, there are those who received him, who are those who believe in his name, who ultimately are those who we will read who have been born of God. There is hope for those. So we see the persistence of our Savior who comes to a rebellious people and he gives new life to those who are dead in sin. As is often the case, as we just finished in reading through Daniel, there is always a faithful remnant. Though there is a, always pictures of just complete darkness, and even culturally now you think there's such darkness, such apathy in our society, and yet there is always a faithful remnant of believers. There is always a faithful remnant whom God will awaken. Now, many of these themes in our passage, John is actually going to pick up on through the Gospel of John. So through the next year or two, we will pick up on those passages, on those themes rather, even more. So we're going to leave a lot of the unpacking of these themes for when we get to them. But one of the most helpful ways uh, today that we can apply this passage to ourselves is really just to ask the simple question of what this is telling us about Jesus. And this is the purpose of John's gospel, that we would know the Christ, we would believe and we would have life in his name. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus? There are uh, three particular things I want to draw attention to of what this passage tells us about Jesus, and then finish with two uh, things that this passage tells us about ourselves. So the first passage, the first uh, theme this tells us about Jesus is that Jesus embodies the perfection of persistence. Jesus has perfect persistence. He comes to his own people who have rejected him, and God had no requirement to do that. He could have left us in our sin which we loved he could have left us in darkness and yet he comes he persists darkness was over the face of the land the darkness is the corruption of sin that infected the entire human race that causes us to rebel against our maker and again God would have been entirely just to condemn all to hell And yet he comes to his own, even as his own people do not receive him. 
Even as they reject him as the good shepherd, which we will read about in John 10 as the good shepherd, Jesus persists where there are thieves and robbers all about the sheepfold. And yet the good shepherd persists and he calls out his own sheep and leads them to good pastures. As the suffering servant, Jesus persists in the garden with his face in the dirt as he is feeling the cup of the wrath of God about to be poured out upon him and yet he persists and follows the Father's will. Jesus embodies the perfection of persistence as he endures the death of the cross. And as I was preparing this, this was quite convicting for me in my own ministry as we look at how this tells us about Jesus but inevitably that should cause us to think about how we are representing Jesus and so as I was uh, reading through this and preparing myself I was thinking that my my natural instinct uh, when I come across rejection which as a chaplain at this school you kind of feel a lot of rejection not everyone likes the old guy coming up and wanting to, to talk about Jesus So you feel a bit of rejection. And my natural instinct is to actually protect my image and and leave them so that I don't suffer the shame of entering into even more rejection. And so I just, I, I usually will think, you know what, they're not worth my time. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Just sort of move on, save face and go to the people who want me. And I was thinking, well, how... How does Jesus display that? He actually comes to those who reject him. And of course, there is an element we see in the apostles' ministry that eventually you shake the dust from your feet and you move on. But the reality is that Jesus does display the perfect embodiment of persistence. And we ought to demonstrate a willingness to persist in a similar pattern in various ways, persisting in our faithful witness of Christ in this dark world, most of whom do not want to hear about it. We persist. We persist in family relationships that may be very difficult. We persist in friendships with people who really aren't all that pleasant to be around, but we persist in them because we know that it is good in and of itself We persist. And Jesus is our perfect model of persistence. Don't uh, miss the huge theme here. In, this face, in the face of rejection, in the face of those rejecting him, Jesus persists. He enters in. He shines a light into the heart of those who are living in darkness to illuminate them to his majesty when we spat in his face and we threw it back to him. Jesus is our perfect model of persistence. Secondly, the second thing we see about Jesus here is that Jesus displays complete humility. The idea that he persists in coming to his own in this context demonstrates a level of humility that is unattainable for man. This is unattainable for man because we are simply not high enough to drop down from. We can't attain this level of humility because we're already so low. Jesus leaves the heights of equality with God, the Father and Spirit. He leaves the heights of heaven 
and lowers himself to the form of a servant to serve the very people who reject him. He leaves the heights that Isaiah saw. Remember the throne room vision. And Isaiah beheld the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah realized how utterly low and unclean he is. And Jesus leaves the heights of that to come and enter in to the corruption of humanity, though he remains perfectly pure. Jesus lowers himself to the lowest rung of humanity. He is the word who was in the beginning with God and who is God. The height, the uncreated creator. And he comes and enters into the world in which he created. And how does he enter in? How does Jesus enter in? He enters in as a servant. He enters in as a a humble carpenter's son from Galilee. As a man who would be despised and rejected. It's like Bill Gates at the height of Microsoft. At the height of it when he was the richest man in the world. And it's like Bill Gates at the height, at the pinnacle of his career. Just deciding, you know what, I'm going to take a low level tech support job at a Microsoft outlet in the Philippines. And just work admin there and maybe sweep the floors a little bit. And thinking of Bill Gates as the creator of this huge company, lowering himself. And that is really nothing in comparison to the God who created everything, entering into the lowest rung of humanity, born in a manger, living a humble life, being despised and rejected. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather lowered himself to the form of a servant so that he could enter into humanity. And this is, of course, why there can be no element of pride in us as followers of Jesus. They just can't. This flattens out any pride. It's absurd to think that we can hold on to any pride when we see the heights from which he lowered himself and when we hear his call to then follow him as a servant. There can be no pride in us. The third thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus desires to increase his family. I had initially wrote Jesus desires to establish a family, but I thought that's not right because actually the family, the perfect family, already exists in the Godhead with Father and Son wrapped up by the Spirit. And God doesn't come in Jesus to make a family because he is sort of missing Um, Himself, just like some parents want children purely because it's going to fill a void within them. That's not what God does. They are perfectly content in the Trinity, perfectly full, and out of the fullness of that love, Jesus enters into the world to increase the family of God. Verses 12 to 13 describe this. We read, Those who did receive him, So to all who did receive him, all who believed in his name. And the way it's written, we really understand it to be all those who did receive him are all those who believed in his name, which is those who are born of God. So those who are born of God are those who receive him. 
uh, uh, sorry, are those who believe in his name, which is really those who receive him. Now, we will look briefly in a moment at the theme of the new birth when it comes to what does this tell us about ourselves. But first, just catch the weight of this really scandalous statement here, where the God who created everything, who is high above all things, he condescends to enter into humanity in order to give people the right to become children of God, to give people the authority to become children of God. What other God in all of human history who has ever been created, lowercase g, God, what other God in all of the world's religions can remain so high and holy, so perfect, and yet somehow desire his creation to be elevated to his family? There is no one else. There is no story like this in all of the world. This is one of the many ways in which the Christian message is separate from every other religion. The idea that this high and holy God is willing to elevate their creation to family. Such an intimate bond. And this is why John, in his first letter, written years after the gospel account, in his first letter in chapter 3, you might remember he has this bold, even incredulous statement. He says... See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's just the way he's saying it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That is incredible. It's almost like a statement of unbelief. Can you believe that we are children of God? Which may be the reason why, when we come back to this passage here, John actually words it by saying, all those who did receive him, all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe because it seems so outrageous that sinners could be called sons of God, could be called children of God. Maybe because it seems utterly absurd that we could be God's children, because to be in God's family must mean that you are clean. God would never allow anyone to his, into his family who is tainted by sin, for that would bring sin into his family. It means that what you do will reflect upon your family. So why would God allow sinful people like you and me who stumble and fall, risk bringing his name into disrepute, because we bear his name as family members. Why would God allow that? So if you actually think about it, it's natural to, to come face to face with this and think this is too good to be true. I'll just take the place of a humble servant. That makes more sense, serving my God. But to be a child, that's a level which seems outrageous. So John here says that Jesus gives the right to become children. Otherwise, it would seem like we're receiving something that we don't have the right to. We don't have the right to become a child of God. Anyone with an ounce of humility would probably think that. There's no way that I have the right to be a child. And so we read here that Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he gives the right to become a child. He gives the right. And if he gives the right, who else can say anything? This is Romans 8. Who is he who condemns? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who dies. 
So therefore, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. If Jesus has opened the door and has given us the right to become God's children, no one can stand in our way. In fact, I would say it is an insult to God not to wear that label with utter conviction and thankfulness. It is a right and a privilege to have the new label of a child of God. Now, what does this tell us about ourselves? Firstly, we must be born again. John will deal with this in chapter 3, and so we'll leave most of our unpacking for chapter 3 when there's that dialogue between John and Nicodemus talking about the new birth. But for now, we clearly see that Jesus gives the authority for those who have been born of God, which is really those who believe in him, who are those who receive him, and he gives the right for those to be children of God. And notice John is clear to say what the new birth is not. It is not those born of blood. It is not those who come from the will of the flesh, not those who have been born of the will of man. Now, we could try and uh, spend more time breaking these down into three distinct categories of what the new birth is not, but I actually think that misses the point. I think John is using a common Hebrew method here of giving one main point by using three layers to add on to that one main point. Though they are distinct, he is giving one main point by giving these three different layers of not those born of blood, not those born of the will of the flesh, not those born of the will of man, rather of God. So the one main point is that there is nothing natural about this new birth. Logically, second birth, how does that happen? Even more than that, there is nothing natural about this new birth. It must be supernatural. It must be something of God. So just to very quickly demonstrate this, born of blood, it's literally born of bloods, plural, which the common Jewish understanding back then was that the, by the mixing of the two bloods of the mother and father would then create the child. So not the mixing of bloods, which we could say an interpretation of that is that you're not a, a, a Christian because you're born into a Christian family. Just like you weren't uh, specifically a um, believer in the Messiah or a believer in God's promises because you were simply born an ethnic Jew. In that sense, Paul says, not all Israel is Israel, but actually you had to believe. It had to be mixed with faith. So it wasn't enough to simply be born of the bloods of a natural birth. Similarly, the will of the flesh. Flesh has many uses, sometimes not necessarily bad, Notice verse 14, Jesus becomes flesh, so not necessarily bad. It has many uses in Scripture, but one of the common uses, which fits very well here, is the union of one flesh between mother and father. Think of, they shall become one flesh. And it's not through the will of that, it's not through the flesh, that someone is a child of God. And then lastly, the will of man. This is not the word anthropos here, which that's important because sometimes man is anthropos, which is just a general statement. This is actually the word that specifically says male, so man or husband. So it's not those who have been born of the will of man, which remember a man was the primary voice within the marriage unit. 
or and or the one who could adopt a child by natural means to bring them into the family. So no matter how we look at this, we still have this picture of John saying it's not through a natural birth, whether through the marriage unit or through adoption. There's nothing about being a child of God that comes through the through natural means. It must be a supernatural birth. You must be born literally from God or Jesus speaks about it in John 3 saying born from above. There must be a supernatural birth that comes only from God. Nothing natural about this at all. Now, how do we therefore know those who are born of God? They believe and receive the Christ. How do we know those who have believed and received the Christ? Well, we proclaim the message of Christ. They believe and receive by hearing the word of Christ. This is Romans 10. How will uh, they believe unless they have not heard? How will they hear unless there's a preacher? How will he preach unless there is one sent? Therefore, it is by the word of Christ, faith comes by hearing. And this is what John's gospel is all about. The message of Christ, the message that Jesus is the Christ, and that by hearing this, people are born again. They receive life, they believe, and have new life in his name. We must be born of God. The second and final thing this tells us about ourselves is that we relate to God as Father and we follow the pattern of Christ the Son. This is a huge thing. We relate to God as Father. So God the Father has chosen to reveal himself to all of humanity in the Son, in Jesus the Son, which means God desires us to relate to him as a Father giving his Son. We know the invisible God through the visible God, whom is Jesus, who is God the Son. So although God is creator, and although we know from Romans 1, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in this world, that he is created. And so people are without excuse. They know that there is a creator. They simply suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Though that is the case, we primarily know God through Jesus. That's how we know him, which means we know him as a father giving his son. That's why Jesus, when he tells us to pray, we begin our prayers by saying, Our Father. It's reminding us that we are children. And he desires that we relate to him as a father. We don't primarily come as slaves, but as sons. We don't come as orphans, but as adopted children. And this is uh, very helpful because you may have had a really terrible earthly father or no father at all. And the worst thing is when people discern uh, God as father based off their earthly experience of a father, that's not the right way around. We understand what a father is primarily by looking to our heavenly father. He is our reference point for what a father is. And we interpret all things through that filter. So this is a wonderful level of intimacy that is just mind-blowing for a creator God to actually say, here I am, a father giving his son that you would believe in my son and become children. That is incredible. 
And Jesus as God's son, as we will read through the Gospel of John, gives us the perfect model of how we are to live in obedience to our Father. The life of Jesus just constantly shows a willingness to live in obedience to the Father. He says, I love to do my Father's will. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus lives to accomplish the Father's will. He delights in obedience to the Father. And he says, this shows that I love the Father. That's why disobedience ought never to be present in us. Though, of course, we may stumble and fall, but the trajectory should always be toward obedience. Disobedience doesn't show that we love the Father. Jesus very clearly says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience actually demonstrates love. And that's why Jesus, as God's son, says, I love to do the Father's will. I do everything that he says perfectly. And you can see that I love the Father because I'm obedient to him, even to the point of death. So that in the garden, he has his face in the dirt and still says, not my will, but yours. I love the Father. He gives us the pattern of obedience. So we are called to this life of obedience as children toward our Father. And we follow our Savior who has given us the model of what love toward the Father looks like, which is a life of obedience. And actually, the life of obedience as followers of Jesus is the most delight-filled, joy-filled path that there is. It's our whole purpose to be set on this trajectory toward obedience, which is toward glory and toward making much of the Father. He is glorified as we delight in following him. So Jesus shows us the perfect persistence. He shows us complete humility and he shows us that he desires to increase his family. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We're going to take time now to uh, let this sink in and, and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We read about being born of God to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We know, we know that the new birth uh, can only come because of death. That is the death of Christ. And also, that's why scripture calls us to die to ourselves, to not cling to our life, but to take up the life of Jesus. So it is always a helpful reminder to know that the life that we have now in Christ is only possible because of the death of Jesus. A simple but yet very important reminder for us. And through death comes new life and life abundantly. The bread and the cup, symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the reminder of the entranceway to this life. Through the cross of Christ, on the other end of the cross, we receive the status of children, beloved children of God. 
because the Father gave his child, because the Father gave his son on the cross to suffer excruciating agony, to suffer the humiliation of the cross in order that we would be redeemed from our humiliation and our filth and our sin and corruption that is entirely placed upon Jesus Christ so that we are cleansed and made pure.